thank you for how faithful you have been to us and are being to us, even when we have not been faithful to you. God, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word, open our hearts, open our minds, that we would be receptive to your word, that we would apply it to our lives, that it would change us and make us better, make us more into who you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Welcome all of you to our 8 o'clock service. It's good to see you this morning. Amen. Got a little rain, but we got up and came out anyway, and we're excited about it. Amen? Amen. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and some of you maybe uh, have your Bibles on your phones or your iPads or some other electronic means, but that's fine, too. Um but turn in your Bible so that you can follow along with me as I go through uh, the scriptures today. Acts chapter 10, I want to read just a few verses. Pastor Stevens read uh, the entire text uh, so elegantly, but I want to uh, read just a few verses beginning with verse 38. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Please follow along with me and keep your Bibles open. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39, and we are witnesses of these things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Verse 40, him God raised up on the third day, and showed him openly. Lastly, verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And today I want to preach uh, the third sermon in this uh, three-part series entitled Expanding the Church, Overcoming Bigotry and Racism. This, this, this story, this text that we have been preaching is the story of how God expanded his church and how he taught his people to overcome bigotry and racism in the expansion of his church. Now, for those of you who were not here, in scene one, we looked at Cornelius, who was a, a soldier, and Cornelius had a vision from God that that Peter, this Jewish uh, preacher, Peter, this Jewish man, the disciple would come to him and that he would tell him what to do. Ananias was a holy man. I mean, he was a good man, rather, but he wasn't saved. He wasn't saved at the time. So the vision said um, uh, Peter will come and tell you what to do. Scene two had Peter's vision. And some of you remember that where Peter saw this sheet come down from heaven. God showed him a movie of all these animals. And then Peter said, and God, the, the angels, the, the Lord said, kill Peter, kill and eat. He said, no, Lord, like no way. I've never eaten anything unclean. And then uh, the Lord says, you should not call anything common or unclean that I have made. And then on last week we saw in scene three where Peter actually visited with Cornelius. And they had this, this, this visit. And in scene three, Peter asked Cornelius, he said, 
So I'm here now. I've broken the laws, but God has shown me that it's okay that Jews and Gentiles can get together now. So why did you send for me? And so in today we want to pick up with scene four, which is Peter's preaching. And then we want to conclude with scene five, where Cornelius, his family members and close friends are saved. In today's text, Peter preached the first message, the first gospel message to a Gentile congregation. It was a message that opened the door uh, of salvation to all people. This was the message that God staged to open the door for salvation for all people, not just Jews, but for all people. God opened the door of salvation to all people of the world, regardless of their race, regardless of their creed, regardless of their culture, or any other distinction. This message is a message pertaining to God's inclusive rather than exclusive invitation to join his family. This is a message about God's inclusion in his, his family. Let's examine the message Peter preached. The first point of Peter's message is that God is no respecter of persons. Look in your Bibles at verse 34. God is no respecter of persons. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That's what the text reads, right? Then in verse 35, Peter goes on to preach, but in every nation, whoever, and in my notes, I, I, I put whoever in bold letters, I, and I underline it, and I I, I encourage you to do the same thing in your Bibles, to, to underline it or either make a note, underline. But in every nation, underline, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, the term in the text, no respecter of persons, means that God does not show partiality and that God does not have favorites. That's what it means. You see that in the text. It means that God, no, no respect of person, means that God does not show partiality and he has no respect of persons. I, I thought about Coach Wooden this week as I prepared this message. Coach Wooden coached UCLA, and he was a world-renowned coach, won all kind of championships, and, and, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Lou Alcindo played for him, and at the beginning of every year, uh, uh, in his book entitled, They Call Me Coach, Coach Wooden said he would tell his team that I don't have favorites. Isn't that amazing? I mean, he had superstars on the team. He had freshmen on the team. He had people who were playing backups on the team. But he told them, I have no favorites. That's amazing isn't it? for a coach to say all of that talent, I have no favorites. No favorites. And then he said this in the book. He said, now, I will treat, I will not treat you all alike. I will not treat you all alike, but I will treat you all fair. So I don't have any favorites. So don't, don't mistake my treating you differently as I have favorites. I don't. It's like in your, in your family. Uh, we have two children. Um, our son just craved attention. But our daughter was more independent. And so, and so, and so, um, Linnell, 
he would, you know, he would take all the attention that you would shower on him. But Dell didn't need all of that attention. So we didn't have to treat him alike in that way. We, we can let Dale play independently, but we, are, but, but, but we had, to, had to give Linnell that attention. Well, Coach Wooden said, I won't treat you all alike, but I will treat you all fair. And then he went on to say, to clarify, he said, now, 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 to show you that I'm not showing any favoritism, everybody gets a new pair of sneakers, as he said. He said, but... Everybody won't get a size 13. See? Everybody get it? Everybody try. So, so, so the favoritism issue would be just buying a certain group shoes. But he didn't do that. He bought everybody shoes. So, so what this says is God is no respecter of person. It means that God does not accept people into his family because of their nationality. You can't get into his family. And boy, I tell you, the, uh, the apostles, the priests, they had a tough time getting that across to, 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 to the Jews because they felt like they were of Abraham's seed and they had it all together. And, 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 and God said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. He does not accept people into the kingdom because of nationality. He does not accept people into his family because of race. He does not accept people in his family because of their social standing. Our social standing and our class does not get us into the family of God. It means that God does not accept people on the basis of things like personal appearance. That's what it means that God doesn't show, show favoritism. He had no, 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 no partiality. I mean, you know, it's kind of like God had to deal with, with uh, the prophet Samuel on, on this when he was looking for the next king of Israel and he told him to go to Jesse's house and Jesse had seven sons and the first one that came out was a tall, good-looking guy and Samuel said, that's him. God said, no, no, no. He said, that's not him. He said, man looks at outward appearance, but God is looking at the heart. And so it turned out that David, the smallest and the youngest, was actually the one that God uh, chose. So God doesn't accept people in his family based upon personal appearance or where they live or where they work or the job titles they have or where they went to school or how gifted or how talented they are. Those things have their place uh, in society, but their place is not among the criteria for getting into God's family and getting to, into God's kingdom. Imagine the ears of Cornelius along with his relatives and close friends perking up. Right about now, the hair is standing up on their necks as they sit on the edge of their seats. They've heard something they had never heard before. All before they had heard that they would be excluded because, 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 because you're a Gentile, because you're not circumcised, because, because, because. But now they're hearing you can be accepted into God's family. Their ears are perking up. The hair is standing up on their necks as they sit on the edge of their seats waiting for the rest of the story waiting with great anticipation to hear the word concerning how God had fixed it so that even they could become a part of his family. So Peter continued preaching in verse 38. Follow along. God's, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, 
who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now watch closely. There are two things Peter reveals in verse 38 that points to Jesus as the promised Messiah, as God's only begotten son, as the savior of the world. There are two things that Peter preached in that sermon that point to Jesus being the savior. First, Peter said God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. The anointing Peter is speaking about is recorded in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, Mark 1, 9 and 11, and Luke 3, 21 and 22. Notice what happens in the Lukean account of Jesus' anointing. This is how Luke explains it. Luke states in verse 21, verses 21 and 22, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. Remember, he was out there. And, and, and John was baptizing people, John the Baptist. And so Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus was baptized by John. He said, John, this got to be, suffer it be, to be so. And while he prayed, while he prayed, the heavens were open in verse 22. And the Holy Spirit, that's the anointing Peter is talking about. The Holy Spirit from on high descended in bodily form, that is so that he could be seen so that the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit could be seen like a dove. And by the way, the dove is still used today as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and a voice came from heaven, the voice of God, of course, which said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. Boy, think about Cornelius. I mean, they're really getting somewhere. Now he, he, he's beginning to understand that Jesus is the Savior, the Son of the true and living God. Make no mistake about it. Peter pre Peter's preaching revealed to Cornelius and all in the room that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the true and living God. But that's not all. Second, Peter said, for God was with him. This is the same idea conveyed in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and also verse 14, where John emphasizes the inseparable nature of God and Jesus by writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see that inseparable nature in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Peter preached that Jesus came from heaven took upon himself flesh, that is, clothed himself in human likeness, and then he dwelt among sinful humanity. This has to be the Son of God. Only the Savior of the world can do this. Even so, Peter makes it clear that while the Son of God sojourned here on earth, the Father never left him, and he never left his Father. They were inseparable. Peter continues in verse 39. Look at the text. Peter says, and we are witnesses. Notice Peter's inclusive language. He said, underscore, we are 
witnesses. We means all of us. We means Jew and Gentiles alike. Now the walls are coming down. We means the circumcised and the uncircumcised. We means those of us who grew up in and around the synagogue, going to the synagogue, and we means those who didn't. We means those who had a bar mitzvah, had training as an early age as Jewish boys, and those who didn't. Peter declares in verse 39, and we are witnesses of all things which Jesus did. All things means how he fed the hungry. All things means how he healed the sick, how he raised the dead. We witness how he lived, how he preached, how he taught as one having divine authority, how he delivered the oppressed, and how he set captives free. Make no mistake about it, Peter said, we witnessed it. And we are witnesses to all things which he did, both in, get this now, in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, where Gentiles congregated as well. And then Peter says, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And I love this, and now like a good Baptist preacher should, or a good preacher should, Peter reminds the congregation that that's not how the story ends. Verse 40, how God raised us, raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. In other words, God raised Jesus up and then put him on display. Isn't that wonderful? That's what happens when you get saved. God God raised Jesus up in your life, and then God puts him on display because people see that your attitude changes, your behavior changes, your disposition changes. God is on display. Jesus is on display in and through our lives. Remember that tomorrow in school, Jesus is on display. Remember that in our homes, Jesus is on display. Remember that in the church, Jesus is on display. Remember that in the marketplace, on the highways, Jesus is on display. Not to all. He put him on display, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. So there it is, there in verses 39 and 41, Peter proclaims the glorious gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, read verses 39 through 41. Peter proclaimed the glorious gospel, the crux of the Christian faith, the apex, the epitome, the pinnacle of God's inclusive expression of hope, and love. It gets no clearer than that. It gets no better than that. Then in verse 43, Peter proclaims the words which set ablaze the hearts of Cornelius, his relatives, and his close family, his close friends. The words they had all been waiting for, the words they had longed to hear, the words behind the vision Cornelius and Peter both had seen. The word an angel of God guaranteed Cornelius would come back in verse 6. 
the word that promised salvation to everyone, regardless of race, creed, or culture. The word that opened the doors of the church. The words that expanded the church and launched a supernatural movement to tear down walls of bigotry and racism. And is still tearing down those walls today. Notice the words in verse 43. To him, all the prophets witness through his name, the name of Jesus, through his name, that name that is above every name, through the sound of his name, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Through his name, here it is, whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sins. Underscore, whoever believes in him, underscore, will receive remission of sins. That means whoever you are, Jew and Gentile alike, can trust the finished work of Jesus on Calvary's cross and be saved from your sins. That's what Cornelius and his family and his friends heard. All of these years they had been excluded. All of these years they were outside of the camp. All of these years they were pushed away and pushed back. But when they heard this word that God told him would come, they understood now that everybody who comes to Jesus can be saved. And after hearing that word, Cornelius and his relatives and close friends trusted Jesus and got saved that very same day. Now, here's the final dramatic scene. Stay with me in your Bibles. And now, as Paul Harvey would say, now for the rest of the story. The grand finale. The granddaddy of the story is captured in verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, Peter was still preaching. Isn't it amazing when God shows up and shows out even when his word is being Preach. You don't always know what God is doing in the hearts of people when preaching is taking place. So preach on your jobs. Preach in your home. Preach at the marketplace. Preach at the gas station. Preach wherever anybody will hear. Preach this word. You never know what God is going to do when you preach it, when you proclaim. While Peter was still preaching, speaking these words. The text says the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision, that is, the, the Jews that were there, that is Peter and, and at least and the six of his entourage, men who were with him, they believed and were astonished. When the Holy Spirit fell, they, 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 they believed and were 
as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. It blew their mind that these Gentiles whom they had referred to as dogs, these Gentiles who were hated and despised, these Gentiles who were a member of the outcast were now filled with God's Holy Spirit. But something else happened. Watch this. Remarkable. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnified God. Isn't that amazing? Just imagine Cornelius and, and, and all of those all those Gentiles. I mean, they spoke in tongues and, and, they're, and, 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 and they're speaking in tongues. Through speaking in tongues, they magnified God. And Peter answered then after he saw this great evidence of their salvation. He answered, Can anyone forbid water? That these should not be baptized, that means receive the public initiation into family of God. That these should not be baptized who have received, watch this, the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay with them a few days. They, 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 now they're ready for instruction. Full of the Holy Spirit, baptized in the family of God. Now notice, Peter preached. Cornelius and his family and close friends heard the word, and they were saved. But God, in his infinite wisdom, knew that, that it would take some doing to convince Peter and the other circumcised Jews of the Gentile salvation. God in his infinite wisdom knew that in order for the crew back in Jerusalem, not only Peter and his entourage, but James and, and John, all the rest of them back in Jerusalem, uh, for them to embrace the reality of the Gentile salvation, the expansion of the church, and the tearing down the, of the walls of bigotry and racism, they would need to witness something that only God could have done. Isn't that amazing? God, God saw the whole thing. And, and God is a God of details. He, he works all the minute details. See, he knows what it takes. He, he knows what it takes to convince us. Some of us, it doesn't take a whole lot for God to convince us. But some of us can be hard-headed. When some of us were out there, you know, we were a little hard-headed and going our own way and, and thought we had it together. But God knew exactly what it would take to convince us, and he did it. And you are here today because God convinced you that it was in your best interest to be in his family than to be in the devil's family. So he, he, knew, he, he knew that they would need to witness something that only God could, could have done. They needed a sign that would leave no doubt in their minds that the Gentiles were saved. They needed to see the Holy Ghost fall on the uncircumcised Jews, Gentiles rather, in Acts chapter 10, just like they witnessed the Holy Ghost filling the circumcised Jews in Acts chapter 2. Yeah. 
Some people call this the Gentile Pentecost. And so God, watch this now. God in his glorious splendor. God in his majestic power. God in his magnificent wonder and nature staged a Gentile Pentecost where those were the first Gentile converts to Jesus Christ with speaking tongues and with magnify God. God staged it. He made it look almost just like what happened in Acts chapter 2. So now nobody can deny that they are saved because the same thing that happened to us happened to them. And so Peter was convinced that these Gentiles were bona fide. He was convinced now that they were certified. The walls of racism are coming down. He was convinced that they were qualified. Bigotry is moving out of the way. He was convinced that they were solidified. He was convinced that they were sanctified. Holy Ghost-filled members of God's family just as they were. He said, notice in verse 47 evidences of his convincingness. And by the way, Peter and the six had to be convinced because later on they got to go to Jerusalem and they got to convince the other fellows who were not there yet. Verse 47 states, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have God has no stepchildren. He has no second-class citizens. When folks are saved, they are saved. When they are sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, they are full-fledged members of the family of God, regardless of their titles, regardless of their background, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of any other man-made, woman-made requirements. That is imposed upon civilization. Now here's a footnote and I'm moving on to a close. Speaking in tongues in the text was a method, not a mandate. I, I want you to get this now. I want, I want you to get this. Speaking in tongues in the text was a method, not a mandate. Tongue speaking in this story is the method God chose to use in order to help ease Peter's mind and convince him as well as the other disciples, even those who were in Jerusalem, that Gentiles could be saved and enter into the family of God. However, this does not mean that every Christian must have a tongue speaking experience. All right, let's stay with this. Watch the word. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament will you find Jesus mandating tongue speaking or any other spiritual gift, such as preaching or pastoring or help, whatever the gift is, healing as a means to salvation. You won't find it in the Bible where Jesus taught any spiritual gift as a means of salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone salvation comes through faith in Christ and Christ alone we must be careful to stay with the message and not allow ourselves 
to become wrapped around and not allow other people to wrap us around the axle of methodology. Are you listening to me? Stay with the message. Don't get wrapped around the axle of methodology. Don't deny other people's experiences of methodology. How God dealt with them, don't deny that. Don't argue with that. Don't try to unconvince people that they've had a certain kind of experience. Maybe that was their methodology. Maybe that's how God used them, but it's not the methodology for everybody. And don't let people put you down because your methodology is different. In fact, it's dangerous to become wrapped around the axle of methodology. It's dangerous to do so. Uh, there's a story of a group of natives living on the island of Malta back in the book of Acts. And, and God's desire for them, like God's desire for all people who have not heard the gospel, is for them to hear the gospel. I mean, that's what missionaries efforts all about. That's why people go to Haiti. That's why they go to Guatemala. That's why they go to, to different parts of the world to share the gospel. God's desire for, the, the, for this group of natives on the island of Malta was to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them so that they could be saved. And we have missionaries in the jungles, in remote places right now, this very moment, doing the same thing. So you know what God did? God arranged a shipwreck. Paul was on his way to Rome. Some of you know the story. And God arranged a shipwreck for Paul and those traveling with him. And the shipwreck, they got off the ship and they made it on broken parts, pieces of the ship. And when they, when they got to land to shore, they were on the island, guess what, of Malta. God has a wonderful way of doing things, doesn't he? Here it is, Paul trying to get to Rome. God said you're going to get to Rome, but you got to be diverted. You need to go by Malta because there are a group of natives that need to hear the word of God. So God called, allowed, called that shipwreck, and they ended up going to Malta. Now watch the story. When they got to Malta, the natives treated them kindly. It was a cold night, the Bible says, a cold night, the Bible says. And Paul, being a worker, a preacher but a worker, gathered some wood for a fire in his arms to keep warm. The Bible said Paul went and got, he went and got this wood. Now, now some of us are too young to remember that, but some of us remember the old wood-burning stove yeah. when it was necessary to get wood in order to keep warm. Now all we do is hit a switch. Pay our bills, hit a switch, we get heat, we get air. But it wasn't like that on the island of Malta. So Paul goes out and he gets this firewood in order to keep warm. But unbeknownst to Paul, when he put the wood on the, on the fire, there was a poisonous snake. Now this snake was known all over the island as the most poisonous snake on, on Malta. In fact, nobody had ever been bitten by this snake and survived. They didn't even have modern technology there, then as we do now. Nobody. And so when, 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 the, when, the, when, the, when the snake got warm, he, he came out of, the, out, of the, out of the wood, out of the heat, running from the heat, 
And the Bible says he fastened onto Paul's hand and he bit him. This poisonous snake bit him. Paul shook the snake off and suffered no ill effect. The natives now, knowing how dangerous this snake is and that this is a poisonous snake and that nobody has ever survived this kind of snake bite. This snake bite meant instant death. They had seen it over and over again. They witnessed that Paul had been bitten, but no harm came to him. And so they were so mesmerized, so amazed by this until they began saying that Paul is a God. Paul is a God. Paul is a God. Little G-O-D, Paul is a God. Because of the methodology God used on the island of Malta, the people were open to Paul's message. Are you with me? He used the methodology of a poisonous snake in order to get the message across that Jesus suffered and bled, died from their sins, rose victoriously from the grave on the third day, and if they trusted Jesus, they could be saved. Now, surely God has not mandated snake bites for every one of us in order to have an open door to do ministry. And, and, and yet there are people in this world that I've read of, at least they used to be in the world, who played with poisonous snakes. Why? Because they were wrapped around the axle of the methodology to the point where they missed the message. And they foolishly thought that playing with snakes were, was a mandate for, for getting the message across. Surely God has not mandated snake bites for everyone in order to have an open door to do ministry. No more than God demands everyone to have a burning bush experience as did Moses. How many of us go out, stand before a burning bush and wait for God to speak to us? That was mandated for Moses. And so it was. Peter got the point. God used tongue speaking and used the coming of the Holy Spirit, tongue speaking, to clear the way for the expansion of his church, tearing down walls of bigotry and racism. And Peter's proclamation says, in essence, these words. Peter said, I see it. Peter said, I, I see now what God has done. Peter's saying, in essence, I'm on board. No more bigotry for me. No more racism for me. No more separation for me. And that's where we need to be. No more judgmentalism for me. No more finger pointing for me. No more, no more spiritual elitism for me. Now I see. Now I see that as believers in Jesus Christ, all of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior. All of us, regardless of where we meet, all of us, regardless of our cultural distinctions, all of us, regardless of our sometimes varied interpretation. Some folk like music in the church. 
Some folk don't. When I was growing up, yeah, it was it was it was it was uncool for for Baptists to have drums and guitars yeah. in the church. And some of us were so foolish until we pointed the fingers at Pentecostals and we said that they were wrong for having music and guitars and drums, but we were wrong. But now I see that God works beyond our thoughts and our views. 